This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Leda Hong Fincher about her new book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. It was published less than a year ago in 2018 with Verso. In this episode, we discuss how the book comes out of Leda's first book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality, and the very positive response she has now had with Betraying Big Brother. The book begins with the story of the the detainment of five feminist activists who are quickly dubbed the Feminist Five on the eve of International Women's Day in 2015. This led to global outrage. Not only is this event significant in and of itself, but it provides Leda Hong Fincher with a jumping off point to consider the Chinese authoritarian state's suppression of the feminist movement as part of their modus operandi. The Chinese government, like other authoritarian states, is patriarchal. Based on extensive interviews, Leda Hong Fincher delves into topics like social media, Me Too, uh, the trauma of detention by the state and its aftermath, the history of feminism in the Chinese state, and the issues themselves that motivate feminists. Ultimately, despite censorship and harassment, the feminist movement in China grows and its members continue to work hard. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Leita Hone Fincher about her book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. Leita, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lori. Uh, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us just a little bit about your background. Um. Sure. I'm a longtime journalist. Um, I did a lot of reporting in China before I went on to do my PhD. Um, I got my master's degree in East Asian language, sorry, East Asian languages and civilizations at Harvard University um, and a master's in East Asian studies at Stanford University. Then I was a journalist for a long time um, and I ended up doing a PhD at Tsinghua University in Beijing in 2014, and I also wrote a book based on my dissertation, and that book was called Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. Um, And so this second book of mine, Betraying Big Brother, really grows out of my previous research in China. And I knew one of the five feminists who uh, 
were jailed in 2015. And, and so that's how I was drawn into this second book project. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, so you already kind of answered my next question, which was how did you come to write this book? So you knew uh, one of these feminist five and they're really the center of the story you're telling here. So I wonder if you might uh, help our audience by explaining who these uh, five Chinese activists uh, are um, and what happened to them uh, when they were detained on International Women Day, uh, Women's Day. And again, what were they involved in? Why were they targeted? That kind of stuff. Um, sure. So th- there had been uh, these, the, probably not not that many activists, actually. There were probably only about 100 mm-hmm. or so feminist activists who were really incredibly involved um, in uh, staging what they called acts of performance art to raise awareness about women's rights issues in the years leading up to 2015. So um, in 2015, what happened was that a group of feminist activists in several different cities in China wanted to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out stickers about sexual harassment on subways and buses. Um, But they weren't able to even carry out that activity because on the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese police in a lot of different cities rounded up feminist activists and and detained them. Um, and then the police ended up focusing on five young women, taking them all to Beijing to a de- the same detention center and holding them there. Um, and it looked as though these women were going to be charged with some kind of disturbance of social order uh, just for planning to hand out these stickers about anti uh, about sexual harassment but what the authorities didn't count on was that the jailing of these women would cause a, an enormous global outcry and attract a huge amount of international media attention so the women ended up being released after 37 days um and uh it's actually after the release of these women that I believe that a a really powerful feminist movement began to grow and develop inside China. Mm -hmm. And in this first chapter, you spend quite an amount of time talking about their actual experiences uh, in detention and what they had to face there. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that and why you think that's important for this movement going, going forward? Yes. Well, I mean, I I focused a lot on the experiences of these five young women who are known as the Feminist Five um, because I think that it's um, it's extremely telling that they were so harshly persecuted, that they were jailed um, and then treated uh, very badly while they were in detention. And so I thought it was important um, to delve into each of the women's experiences, how they were interrogated by Chinese state security agents, how they were mistreated and abused. And um, I I think that they were all severely mistreated, at least psychologically, um, and, you know, routinely woken up in the middle of the night for interrogations um, and various kinds of mistreatment that I detail 
in the book. And um, first of all, uh, the jailing of the women, I think, marks an important turning point in the history of women's rights and particularly the resistance of women um, in China. Uh, because prior to that that act of jailing these women, the Chinese government had really not paid any attention to feminist activists because they were so marginal. Um, so their activities, they also didn't attract a lot of attention from uh, from the general population in China. So they were pretty much on the fringes of society. Nobody was really paying much attention to them. These women were basically pretty anonymous until they were jailed. And then they gained this international fame and notoriety. Um, so it, uh, it, it tells you, um, I think there are a lot of different levels that there's just understanding the, um, emotional difficulty, um, that all of these women encountered and how it affected that, how the jailing, their own jailing affected them and made them even, uh, more passionate and determined after their detention, um, and how they overcame the, the trauma of, uh, being mistreated in detention, um, and in many ways, it's something that, even though it's extreme, these you know these women were jailed in China. Um, but in in many ways, um, what the women who have been persecuted in China have experienced um, is kind of emblematic of the oppression of women everywhere. And I think that there is, even, even though their experience was so extreme in detention, that there's still a lot that ordinary people um, in America or other countries can actually really relate to emotionally in reading about the experiences of, and the reactions of these young women to the way they were treated by these, you know, by this incredibly powerful um, state security apparatus in China. And so it's a, a real testament to their courage um, and, um, and persistence and resilience. I think it's very inspiring in a way how they've overcome, um, you know, the, their own personal traumas um, and how they approach this larger struggle for women's rights in China. Mm. Uh, you just mentioned that this has, uh, of course, global appeal, this topic to hear about these women and their experiences. I was wondering, uh, and this is a question I was thinking of asking you maybe later, but I'll ask it now, uh, is how did you envision this book's uh, audience and has it been read in China? Are your the activists that you've interviewed, have they read this book? Is this something that's being discussed perhaps on uh, social media in China. What have you found so far? Right. So the book came out in September um, of 2018, and now it's you know about six, uh, six months later. So it's in English. It hasn't been translated into Chinese. So I haven't gotten any kind of reaction from the Chinese government. And also because it hasn't been uh, advertised on social media, and there's, you know, there's a huge crackdown on the 
any discussion of feminism on social media in China, which I write about as well. Um, so it's it hasn't been widely discussed among ordinary people in China, but within the feminist community, uh, first of all, all everybody that I interviewed in the book. Um, uh, I mean, one interesting thing to note is that every single activist, with one exception, wanted me to use her real name. Um, so she wanted to be identified um, and, and not be anonymous um, because their, their stories are constantly being erased in China on the internet by aggressive internet censors. Um, and so I was in, particularly before the book came out, I went back to the activists that I interviewed to go over with them what was actually going to be published as a, you know, I had done these interviews with all of them uh, in the most cases I'd interviewed them repeatedly over time. So I wanted to make sure that they were okay because it was, you know, a few years after the initial interviews um, before the book came out. So I had to put a lot of work at this was an, I think an extraordinary effort on my part to make sure that they were okay with the final printed version of, you know, what they had told me. And so I, I, um, I ended up taking out a, a few of the more alarming examples of how a couple of them were mistreated by security agents just in, um, out of concern for, you know, their, their own, uh, their own comfort level and their own uh, safety. So, um, but in the end, I mean, the uh, the feminists I interviewed were all, you know, they're they're really glad that I wrote this. Um, I don't honestly don't know because their their ability to understand English really varies. So I don't know if they've all read the book in English. Um, but the book itself has, um, I mean, I've been very pleased with the reception in general. Um, and I've also spoken quite a lot about the book since it came out. And, um, and I've, I've also appeared in public with some of the Chinese feminists that I've interviewed, and they've also spoken with me about the book. And so um, that, uh, I, and I was just in Beijing, actually speaking at the Beijing Bookworm Festival in March. Um, and one and two of the feminists I interviewed in the book were able to come and speak at this festival as well. Um, although we didn't advertise their names in advance, so um, so it shows you that there is still space in China for for a pretty substantial discussion. Um, of feminism, although uh, the censorship of these topics on the internet, on social media has become increasingly aggressive. Yeah, you talk a lot about that in your second chapter, obviously, with a crackdown on the Chinese internet, definitely from 2009 forward. I'm wondering if you might also briefly comment on uh, how feminist activists uh, worked around the censorship, particularly in regards with the 2017 Me Too movement, since that's something uh, 
global on social media that they're engaging with? Right. Well, I mean, Chinese feminists had for years already been mobilizing around the issue of sexual harassment prior to this, you know, viral Me Too hashtag campaign that went viral globally towards the end of 2017. Um, But that Me Too movement globally provided a convenient hashtag and symbol that the activists were then able to seize on to push um, to push forward the feminist movement inside China again and give it more a lot more momentum. And so um, I mean this movement in general in China is has uh, ebbed and flowed, but it, overall it's been gaining strength and I think that it it sh- um, the way that Me Too ended up erupting in China in early 2018 shows you just how the efforts of these feminist activists over the years had really borne fruit. Um, so in a, around April of 2018, um, there were uh, thousands of university students and recent graduates who who signed these petitions sent to dozens of different universities across China demanding that the universities take sexual harassment on campus really seriously. Um, And so that was an extremely rare form of collective action on university campuses. And it revolved around the Me Too campaign. Um, it was about sexual violence and sexual harassment. And so that was another major turning point, I think, um, in in s- spreading the message of feminism or women's rights and, and certainly sexual violence, spreading that message well beyond the core of m- really radical feminist activists inside China to just ordinary students in particular, university students, including men as well as women and the LGBTQ community at large. Um, And so that's an indication, the fact that, you know, these petitions were being signed at dozens of universities all across the country. It's an indication of just how much resonance the message of feminism and women's rights has in China today, um, particularly among um, college-educated or college-going young people, um, and especially young women. And so so that that also, at the same time, even as Me Too, um, or China's version of Me Too really was uh, kind of exploding around the country at the same time, the government around the same time on the night of international women's day in 2018, the government banned feminist voices, which is the name of the most influential feminist media platform, um, on China's equivalent of Twitter, Weibo, and then also on WeChat, which is, this incredibly popular group messaging app in China. So, so what you see uh, is at the same time an increase 
um, of interest and participation in women's rights related activities by particularly by young women, but also sometimes by men. Um, and you see that increased awareness of women's rights in general, coinciding with an increasing crackdown by the government on feminist activities in general. And so there's this confrontation going on and it continues to be very fraught. Uh, yeah. And that certainly comes across uh, for sure in your next chapter, which talks about, uh, again, with the Feminist Five, their release uh, from detention, uh, but how this is kind of an ongoing issue for them, right? That even when they're released, they're not completely uh, free from the Chinese security state or from being monitored. And that's kind of representative, it seems, of what's going on in the broader movement, that there's this constant monitoring, uh, surveillance of what they're up to, right? Yes. I mean, even after the Feminist Five were released from formal detention, um, they were were all sent back to their families, Um, even when uh, most of them had been living by themselves, actually, or prior to their jailing. Um, but they were sent, four of them were sent back to their parents' homes um, so that their parents could watch them. Or, or uh, And it, it, in, in one case, even the parents were kept under house arrest um, by the police. And then, and then one of the women was actually, or, or is married and has a child. And so she was sent back to her husband and child. Um, but they, the, that time was still very difficult. The first months after the formal release of the women from detention was ex- still extremely difficult for all of the women because they were, um, and, and I give, a. a, a an account of what happened to some of these women. And in one case, one of the women was even more severely interrogated and mistreated and abused by these security agents after she came out of the detention center. And it's pretty harrowing how um, the, the, the treatment that she had to endure. Um, and so it, it gives you a real sense of just how brutal this um, security apparatus is in China, just how, um, you know, how, how, how there really is no rule of law. There's no restraint on these security agents. Um, and it, it's very frightening uh, what these women had to go through. And in a couple of cases, what they experienced was even more harrowing to them emotionally and traumatic than what they had had experienced when in formal detention where they were at least in in a jail with regulations you know they were in, in a cell with other women so um so i also described that um and and then what the women had to to do um to overcome that personal trauma Right. Uh, And you also look at the Feminist Five as a way to, of course, highlight the issues that they are uh, fighting about, right? About sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic violence. 
uh, in your next chapter, uh, which is your body is a battleground. Um, and also interestingly highlight the misogyny and harassment of women in human rights groups. So that's perhaps something we wouldn't uh, necessarily think of right off the bat. Would you mind maybe picking one of those issues and uh, exploring it for us a little bit? Yes. Um, I mean, I write about, well, uh, how violence against women or sexual violence against women is certainly a global problem. It's not unique to China. Um, And this is one of the central issues taken up by the Chinese feminists, but it's an issue that that women around the world are confronting or experience on and in many ways are fighting back against today um, through me, me, the Me Too movement or various other ways. Um, but I think that one, uh, one thing that really astonished me and yet is also a pretty global or universal phenomenon is the sexual abuse um, within the human rights community. So that even within this community of activists, um, who are confronting the Chinese government in various ways, that the men are often real chauvinists, sexually harassing and preying on the women in their own movement. And so I tell the story of um, the one of the feminist activists uh, in the Feminist Five, Lee Maidza, is uh, she's a lesbian, and her longtime girlfriend um, was being represented was being represented by a human rights lawyer, and and the lawyer was representing uh, her her girlfriend Lee Maidza while Lee was in jail, but then he. You, he preyed on the girlfriend um, when she was at her most vulnerable and was sexually harassing her while he was representing her girlfriend who was in jail. And so publicly he was giving these interviews to foreign journalists about how terrible it is that the Chinese government is jailing feminists um, and how terrible sexual harassment is, that's all, you know, they all just wanted to highlight the problem of sexual harassment. But he himself privately was sexually harassing this young feminist. All, and uh, it, it's really an extraordinary story. And yet it's something that you can see happening in rights communities around the world. And you can even see it, I mean, you can see it in America too, where there there are progressive male heroes who are then accused by women um, of sexual harassment or uh, rape. Um, and, and then um, those kinds of dynamics where the women who are victims of that uh, the, 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 the man are then pressured to stay silent because, you know, they're accused of, you know, the women are often accused of, of um, hurting the unity of this rights movement if they speak out. And you can see those dynamics happening in U.S. politics as well, like with um, – I don't know, Al Franken, for example, who had to, who was pressured to 
resign from his seat um, in Congress because of what he had done to other women. Um, and then a lot of Democrats were very angry about that, at the women who came out publicly. Um, but, that, but, but this particular story that I tell, um, among other stories in that chapter, is, is um, I think, especially uh, shocking, and, but also very interesting, that, that, um, how the dynamics, these dynamics of, men, progressive men, you know, uh, saying one thing in public and then privately exploiting or preying on women in their own movement. Yeah, I found that particular story of uh, Teresa's lawyer also fairly shocking when I read it. So I'm glad that you've highlighted that here for us. Uh, So the next place you go in your book uh, is about the history of feminism in China, uh, beginning with the early 20th century, leading up pretty much to today, and also how the policies of the PRC um, have kind of shifted over the years in regards to women. Um, I'm wondering if you might pick something from that to highlight, uh, perhaps uh, some of the findings from your first book, uh, leftover women might be appropriate, or also this kind of tension between women being important parts of the communist revolution um, in the 1950s, 60s forward, um, but also not being fully equal, fully respected, um, as we sometimes think. Yes. Um, well, I mean, in in this chapter, I really highlight how feminism has played an incredibly important role in China's revolutionary history, and that the importance of feminism in China's own history, in its own communist revolutionary history, even um, has just been erased by the Communist Party today, which is. A, extremely male dominated there are there has never been a woman at the elite levels of chinese politics ever um with a couple of exceptions in the early communist era when mao zedong was still the chairman um the founder of the people's republic and his wife became quite powerful informally um but um but I think it's incredibly important to highlight the role that feminism has played at various critical times in China's own history over the last century or even more than a century. So I, I write about some of the feminist uh, revolutionaries at the turn of the century in China um, at the in the May 4th movement, which was in uh, in incredibly important and led up to what later became the communist revolution that in in the communist revolution women also played an extremely important role early on and then uh male leaders in the communist party um used feminism also um and the idea of gender equality to mobilize women and to recruit them to join this young party, to join the revolution. 
And so um, it, it does give you, I think, really important background to the birth of this new independent feminist movement in China that has happened over the last few years. Um, and at the same time, I also talk about how um, China has gone from uh, the early communist era where it really held up gender equality as a central pillar of the revolution. Um, you know, Mao Zedong said very famously that women can hold up half the sky. And so there were a lot of things that the Communist Party did in the early era, um, like mobilizing women to en masse to go to work in the cities and, and in the countryside. So um, at the end of the 1970s, China's female labor force participation in the cities was around 90%, which was surely the highest in the world. Um, but then with market reforms at the end of the 1990s, and, and I write a lot about this in my first book, Leftover Women, um, there was a huge resurgence of gender inequality in many, many forms. One of the things that I researched um, for my PhD and wrote about in my first book was how the privatization of housing really um, exacerbated gender, the gender wealth gap because women were in many different ways shut out of it, a massive accumulation of um, residential property wealth as China privatized its housing and then it, le it led to this massive real estate boom with astronomically increasing real estate prices. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a, a very severe form of uh, gender discrimination as well because uh, women haven't been able to uh, to benefit in the, the way that men have in many ways from this real estate boom. And so, for example, women, um, most property in China is owned by men and not women. And, but, um, uh, but the overarching theme is that um, women in the past have felt, particularly uh, young women um, who've gone to college, who are extremely well-educated and very capable and intelligent. And I write about this in my first book. They often, or most of the time, would just keep their suffering to themselves. So they would be, they, uh, I interviewed so many women for my first book who were incredibly unhappy in their personal lives. They really wanted economic independence. They wanted, you know, their names on their own property deeds. They, um, when they had contributed financially to the purchase of their home, for example, but they're constantly being pressured into getting married and buying homes. Um, but the, but women, even just a decade ago, largely kept their suffering to themselves. They largely thought they couldn't do anything about it. But there's been a real change in recent years, in the last five or uh, somewhat more years in China, where women are increasingly realizing just how much they are discriminated against, how much injustice there is 
Um, and they don't want to stay silent. Increasingly, they're speaking out about the injustice that has been done to them in various ways, whether it's sexual violence or gender discrimination um, in the workplace or in the universities um, or in the factories even. Um, so uh, this is a, it's beyond just a political feminist movement. It's, it's a much broader awakening among ordinary women about um, how they can and are willing to stand up for their rights and speak out as opposed to staying silent. Uh, certainly. And you get into that in your book as well with a chapter about how feminist thinking moves not just in feminist circles, but also into other areas like uh, lawyers who want to organize women uh, to to think about the issues, uh, feminist issues that are affecting them, and also in the labor rights movement as well. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more in depth about one of those, either these lawyers who are starting to organize uh, as women or how uh, feminist issues are being incorporated and women are being more incorporated into the labor movement. Yes. Well, I think... um it's important in both well the the i think i'll talk more about the labor rights because what what we see there there are these human rights lawyers but there there are not that many of them yet in china but even among the rights lawyers there are increasing numbers of women's rights advocates who are focusing on feminist issues um, and rep choosing to represent women to push um, women's rights legally further to to develop more laws to protect women in the workplace or in the home from intimate partner violence, for example. Um, that's an important development. But it but there aren't that many lawyers yet because the lawyers themselves are uh, rights lawyers are really persecuted in China. As well. Um, now, the labor rights movement is uh, is much broader, actually. There are because um, it it affects factory workers themselves. So there are all across China, but particularly, especially in southern China and Guangdong province, the um, where a lot of manufacturing factories are located. Um, that's where there's been a lot of labor unrest, where the factory workers themselves take part in demonstrations against management. or um, And so they, they're taking part in collective action to demand more rights as workers. So overall, you've seen in recent years more and more women factory workers on the front lines of those worker protests. Um, and uh, in addition to that, there are the labor rights activists who are trying to lead these workers in standing up for their rights or lead them in collective bargaining efforts. And um, in, on that front, there are also, there's also been uh, in very recently more of a feminist emphasis where feminist activists, and I talk about 
one there's one of the feminist five in particular um, who lives in Guangzhou um, has long been involved um, or long I mean or you know uh, at least five years been very heavily involved in um, in advocating for factory women in particular um, for working class women and so um, so in the last few months there's been an harsh crackdown by the government on young labor rights activists. And among those labor rights activists are also feminist activists. So these labor rights activists, this is a a, um, pretty new development. It's it's building on the years-long women's rights movement and also the labor rights movement that has existed for years, but this coming together of advocacy for gender, for gender and class, um, this is kind of a new development where there are, there have been elite university students in China who are so um, they're they're very radical, and they've uh, actually t- some of them are. Feminists who, for example, one feminist who had a master's degree from an elite university then took a job herself as a factory worker so that she could better observe the conditions of workers um, to help unionize them and, and demand more rights. So she's one of the activists who's been detained in recent months in a really aggressive new crackdown on. Um, elite university graduates or students who are agitating for factory workers' rights. And so there are about a, a couple of dozen or more of those activists are in detention now, and we don't know where they are. But there's this combination, the intersection of feminism and, um, and labor activism. And that's a new flashpoint um, in the in resistance of all kinds in China. Right. And our time is starting to run a little short, but I'd love if we could briefly talk about uh, your final main chapter, which is about uh, China's patriarchal authoritarianism. So in this chapter, you're talking about Chinese policymakers and their view of feminism as being hostile and tied with the Western world, and also how they're trying to use women now as tools to realize the development goals of the nation. So uh, they're trying to position women as people who are there to have children that will be future workers, etc. So can you just comment uh, briefly on some of these major developments, particularly under Xi Jinping? Sure. Um, well, I, I think overall, I feel that the analysis um, over many years of why it is that the Communist Party has stayed in power for so long in China that it's been able to outlast communist rule around the world. It's now outlasted the Soviet Communist Party to be the longest lasting communist regime in the world and certainly the most powerful. Um, but but I argue that you have to look at the patriarchal underpinnings of authoritarian rule in China. 
that underneath it all, um, and you can see it p- in particularly under the current president, Xi Jinping, but, but it was these patriarchal patterns um, were there even before he became president, long before he became president. But just um, the view that women are primarily what I call reproductive tools for the Chinese state, that they are um, they're seen as useful only insofar as they can have babies and they, you know, they can uh, oversee the family at home. So the women are supposed to be in charge of just rearing children and taking care of the elderly in the home. And this, there's been a renewed emphasis or a huge push in recent years to that has accelerated under Chinese President Xi um, to push women to return to very traditional so-called feminine roles, um, push them out of the workforce, in effect. So female labor force participation has been declining relative to men's in recent years. And... um, that's just one example, but I give a uh, you know a, a lot of examples of of how misogyny and sexism, basically the subjugation of women, relegating women to very traditional roles of obedient wife and mother in the home, that that is now seen by the male-dominated communist party as being critical to its own political survival. That. And there are many ways in which um, uh, you can see it in the propaganda today um, with with this new so-called two-child policy where the government got rid of its decades-long one-child policy um, and now it's really pushing especially educated Han Chinese women into having two babies, into marrying early and having two babies. And so um, throughout it all, uh, throughout even Chinese history, but especially in recent years, it's just you you can see how um, the the government believes, or the male dominated government believes, that it's an entire uh, longevity as as a political party without elections. That the key to its survival, in the view of these male leaders, is to keep women down, to keep them confined to the home and try to get them to have, excuse me, to try to get them to have more babies. Um, and, and by the way, that's not a dynamic confined to China. I think that you can see that around the world with the rise of authoritarianism, that it's closely linked to the subjugation of women. Uh, well, Leda, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to give you uh, one last moment to uh, either have a final kind of parting comment about all of this, about feminism in China, or perhaps also tell us about what you're working on now. Um, sure. Well, I mean, I haven't had a lot of time uh, since the book came out in September. I've been really busy just traveling and giving talks about it. But um, I am really interested in, uh, I I mean, I I analyze um, China's patriarchal authoritarianism. Um, But now I'm really interested in in just uh, exploring how that 
authoritarianism in around the world is underpinned by misogyny and the subjugation of women. And so um, that's something that I'm interested in, in looking at. Um, so, but, but I haven't had a lot of time because I've largely been promoting this new book. Yeah, I fully understand that. And, um, I will certainly look forward to anything new that you come out with in the future. So again, uh, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners will too. Uh, goodbye. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Thanks for listening.